Welcome to episode number 258. Today's episode is really fun and really dives into a number of topics. We're going to be talking about living a simpler life, which is no big surprise if for a podcast that is titled Pioneering Today or talks about using modern homesteading and those old fashioned uh, tips and techniques to live in our modern lives. But we're also going to be looking at how COVID-19 has impacted our ability to get supplies and how a lot of the places that are providing these supplies and especially supplies that help us live this homesteading lifestyle. So gardening supplies and in your kitchen supplies, especially supplies that don't take electricity or your home food preservation supplies. So canning lids in bulk and canning jars, a lot of those different things, how the companies that provide them, how they're being impacted by COVID-19 and kind of what you need to know about the ability to get these from them. And then also we're talking about, which is one of my favorite topics because it's on my bucket list, is to go and visit either an old order Mennonite or an Amish community. I am fascinated, big surprise, by the way that they live. I feel like they are living as close as you can get in in modern society because they are still touched by our, our modern lives, though not nearly as much as most uh, Englishers, as they would say, or uh, modern society as a whole. Um, but it's been on my bucket list to go and visit an Amish community because so much of their craftsmanship and the way that they are so self-sufficient and they provide for themselves and their family, like so many things that they embody um, are things that I would like to embody and to learn because they're doing it on an even deeper level than I am. So we're talking today with a company that has products that are carry they carry products that are provided by Amish craftsmen. So I was very interested as to how that relationship works, um, how much they carry that is actually made by the Amish and how the Amish community has kind of influenced uh, what they have in their store, but also then how the public, you and I, can actually get access to and order a lot of these Amish products online and or their store if you happen to live in Iowa that I you know, couldn't get or I wouldn't have access to on my own. Excuse me, and I said Iowa and I meant to say Ohio. So my huge apologies there. <laughs> that is Glenda from Layman. So you may or may not have heard of them before, but it was a fascinating conversation. I ended up learning a lot and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to share with you is they are providing, if you decide that you want to go and check out any of this stuff and get some supplies, including the canning lids in bulk, which I have shared multiple places. And a lot of you guys have asked me questions about that as well. Um, they have a special coupon code. So you can go to layman's.com forward slash pioneer. And that's the pioneer is capital, just one word. And for the next 30 days, you can get 10% off a $50 order minimum order and use code Pioneer as your coupon code at checkout. So that's one of the reasons you want to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast, because whenever we have time things like this, you want to make sure that you're getting to listen to that episode as soon as possible. And if you're subscribed, then it just is waiting there for you as soon as it goes live on your listening device, which for most of us, that listening device happens to be our phone. I know that's how I consume most of the podcast episodes that I listen to. So without further ado, let's just dive straight into this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Guys, I am super excited for this interview today. I just find it absolutely fascinating and it's one of my favorite places i have not had the privilege of visiting them in person but let me tell you do i pour over the catalog and over the website and i have a wish list i it's like a mile long i'm slowly chipping away at it so i am so excited to get to talk today with glenda from lehman so glenda welcome to the pioneering today podcast thank you i am excited to be on your podcast as well Yay. So for those who may not be familiar with your store, um, can you give us a little bit of Lehman's history and mission? 
Sure. Uh, Layman's was founded in 1955, which if you do the math, that's 65 years ago by my father, Jay Layman. And his goal was to provide the Amish, the local Amish, which are, there's many, many of them here in Ohio, with the products they needed to maintain their way of life, living off the land, living without electricity. His thought was that if there were no butter churns or wheelbarrows, then nobody would know how to use those products anymore. The big thing that made a difference is he also had a desire to preserve the past for future generations. What that means is those old time skills, like the ones you're teaching, if you weren't teaching them, who would? You know, if your, your grandmother didn't can or garden and your mother didn't can or garden, well, how do you teach, or your father for that matter, you know, how do you teach the younger generation? And we've really seen, seen this uh, coming true now over the years because he continued with his mission of selling simple, practical, old-fashioned products, people-powered products. And even though the world changed around us, and honestly, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, people told us, you know, you, this is not a sustainable business model. Nobody wants these products anymore. Everything's going digital, online, that sort of thing. And we've seen just the opposite to be true, that the more people are involved in tech, the more they like to get their hands in the dirt. And you can probably relate to that. Oh, absolutely. And like, as you were talking, I'm like, oh, be still my heart. I've, <laughs> I've always felt that I was, not really, but I'm always like, man, I was born a century too late. Like I've always been fascinated with reading all of the Little House on the Prairie books and that whole pioneer homesteading time period and lifestyle and old fantasy old-fashioned, vintage, just all of those things. And I know from a Christian viewpoint that I was born exactly when I was supposed to be born, but my heart has always had a yearning for those things of old. And so everything you were saying, I'm like, yes, my hand is raising. I know nobody can see it, but I'm like, that's my mission too. So I am so happy that your father saw that and followed his heart. And now we have your guys' store, which is amazing. So, and I'm with you. The simple life, and I do digitally, I mean, this podcast is like, there's so many wonderful things, honestly, about the internet that has enabled us to take these old fashioned skill sets, which seems funny, but using this very modern tech and able to give it to people who would not otherwise really have access to it. So I really am not, um, I don't like to knock a lot of the wonderful tech and digital, digital stuff that we have, because I think there's a balance and there's kind of a beauty in both worlds, but I am notice the exact same thing. I really need that balance of then getting off of the tech world and going and grounding myself literally like in the ground and ha garden, hands in the dirt, um, making, you know, sourdough and bread from scratch and, and using those tools that are more old fashioned and simple. Um, I think it's a really good balance. So I think it's really interesting that you guys are seeing that too. Um, so what are kind of like the four pillars if we're talking about a simple life what are the four pillars that you guys determine to help with that? You know, we just added a fifth one because of the situation that we're in now. And we see people really wanting to be prepared. Um, so preparedness is one of the pillars. And that means uh, relieving anxiety and stress because you're ready for what might come, whether it's a power outage, whether it's a natural disaster, or in the case we are now, a pandemic, when the things that we're used to having easy access to, we can't have. Um, the four other pillars are satisfying. Uh, human beings were created to create, and there's a real satisfaction. I know my daughter and I have been baking and gardening and cooking and, you know, to, to give somebody something like my father, you know, we, we made this for you. We made this from scratch, and she just loves to bake from scratch. She's 20, my daughter. So satisfying and preparedness are two of the pillars. The other one is comforting. Being with family, um, I know many of us miss our loved ones now, and just to have a big family group sitting around the table, enjoying a meal, playing cards, comforting is another important pillar. Uh, the two other ones are understandable and sustainable. Understandable. So much in the world we can't understand my cell phone i rely on my cell phone if it doesn't work i need to get help to get it to fix uh, to get it fixed um and so products that we have are very understandable for example we have a push mower and if it's not working you're not walking <laughs> i love that i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you with laughing but i adore that 
Yeah. Um, the last one is sustainable. Um, heating with wood, um, you know, growing your own food. So if you put all of those pillars together, comfortable, satisfying, comforting, satisfying, sustainable, understandable, and being prepared, it relieves a lot of stress from your life. Oh, I absolutely, totally concur with everything that you said. It has been really amazing during this time, one, to know we didn't have to go out. So with the shelter at home order, we could go out if we needed to, to grocery stores in certain places, but just the knowledge that we didn't have to, but it was also very eye-opening. And I'm sure that you're probably seeing this with your guys' store because even though I thought I was quite prepared in a lot of ways, this opened my eyes to areas that I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. And so it's given me opportunity to kind of fix those holes and to begin working on the areas where we weren't as prepared as I thought it, that we were, which I'm assuming you guys are probably seeing that happen with your orders and customers too. We are. There's actually, there's an interesting um, uh, three different categories we're seeing. One would be the the typical preparedness products such as water pumps and oil lamps and wood cook stoves. And, and those are a lot of the things that we saw selling during Y2K when people were concerned the grid would collapse. And then the other one is what we call comforting items, puzzles, croquet sets, cookie sheets, baking items. And then the third category, which I find most interesting, is people looking to make long-term changes to their lives. Like we'll hear from a customer, I've never gardened before, I rent a small apartment, what do I do? Well, we suggest container gardens or even, you know, get a, get a bucket and plant some tomatoes in there, which tells me that they're learning new skills because they don't want to be in this situation again. Yeah, that's really interesting um, to hear. And I love that you mentioned wood cook stoves and some of those, some of those other items because a lot of folks probably didn't grow up with a wood cook stove. So I know a lot, a lot of homes in the U.S., even, even today, do use wood heat as a source, but not as many people cook on a wood cook stove, even if they use it for a heat source. Some do, but there's a lot that don't. And so that brings me to where you guys get your products and a lot of products that you carry. And you said that when your dad founded it, you mentioned the Amish. So I'm really curious as to how the Amish community has influenced what you guys provide to your customers. And do you then in turn carry products that are made by the Amish? Yes. At the beginning, the Amish were a large percentage of dad's clientele. However, in the 1950s in rural Ohio, a lot of non-Amish did not have indoor plumbing and, and things like that. Over the years, the amount of Amish, the numbers of Amish that shop with us has remained consistent. But what was once probably 80% is now probably 6 or 7%. They do make product for us, which dad's original goal was to help them maintain their way of life, which for an Amish person means working at home. Many of them farm, but there's not a lot of an, enough farmland to go around. An Amish gentleman told me he wants to put his feet under the table three times a day. And what that means is eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner with his family, which is what he would do if he farms. So many of them have shops where they build things. And so now we continue to help the Amish maintain their way of life by allowing them to work at home. We have a hickory rocker that is made by the Amish. And the gentleman that was making it has taught his son and his grandson how to make it too. So perhaps if he had been, um, you know, had to go work in a factory, that skill of making those hickory rockers would not have been passed down from generation to generation. Um, they, they like working with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. We understand their culture. My dad even speaks Pennsylvania Dutch, which is a, a oh. kind of version of German. Yeah. Um, he can communicate with them. And we have a, a long history of supporting them and some of our product ideas come from them and of course if they're making product they're not uh, a factory running three shifts so if we have there's a particular well bucket we sell and perhaps we have a demand for one a week and during times like this we have demand for 50 a week well he's not automated he will not work on sundays he's not capitalist which means 
pay him more money to work more hours and they often only hire family. So you can see how some of our, our back orders occur when there is a high demand for an Amish made product. The last time I looked within 50 miles, we had, I think it was close to 300 vendors. Now, not all of those are Amish, but many of them are. Oh, that's fascinating. So with COVID-19, because I know your your the impact of ability to get supplies, and I'm going to assume this comes from both, like you said, the Amish, because this is man-made, handmade, uh, not an assembly line, unless it's just a few people in the family per se. Um, and so it's not like it can be mass produced, which is amazing because I know the, the craftsmanship that you get is unlike anything that you're going to get in a factory. It's going to last for for you know decades and and generations and and there's just so many factors that go into that but of course meeting demand is one thing um but some of your guys' stuff i'm assuming not everything that you sell could be from the amish so how has covid-19 both with with your amish suppliers and then your other suppliers as well impacted the ability uh to to keep the products on the shelf and also shipping out to customers it has really impacted us. Um, <clears throat> I can give you some numbers of, of demand. The, the puzzles that we sell last March and April, so March and April 2019, we sold 30 puzzles online. This March and April, we sold over 700. Oh, wow. Um, we have a certain cookbook that we sold for last April, and this April so far, we've sold 50. So you can see the kind of unprecedented demand the number one thing that is out of stock that people want is the canned meat. And you've probably heard of the meat processing plants that are being shut down and the uh, excess animals, if I can use that term, mm -hmm. um, and to do with them. So it, it just it brings up a whole bunch of questions like, like what is wrong with our food production system that this is happening you have people who are hungry and then you have you know extra animals that can't get processed in time so canned meat um the, some of the canning and gardening supplies are out of stock too um in the case of the puzzles the factory actually had to close because of covid so we do have lots of puzzles left but not the full assortment we're watching it very closely um, we're in touch with our vendors uh they're trying the best they can can, but they're just seeing so much demand. In many cases, they've uh, um, added extra shifts as we have too in our warehouse. We now have first and second shift, which we might do over the holidays, but we have never done before in the springtime. We're just all trying the best we can and asking people to be patient. I know it's frustrating as a consumer. I know it's frustrating when you want product and you find it's going to be weeks out. But if you place your order and we can get the product, we will get it to you just as soon as we can. Yeah. And I've noticed that because I've actually purchased my canning lids in bulk from you guys for years. I'm trying to remember how far back. I think it's been at least three years. Um, and I, when all of this kind of started, I started jumping ahead because I knew within our own garden that we were looking, you know, into the fall and winter months. One, my, my kids did go to public school. Now, of course, they're, they're not. They're, they're homeschooled because none of the schools are open in Washington State where I live, which is the case with a lot of the country at the moment, even the world. But that meant that we were eating more at home, even though I felt like, you know, like my husband would take his lunch to work and I felt like, you know, we did take food from home quite often. When you're just in your house a lot more, you're naturally eating more. And so I was looking at our supplies of my home canned food and dehydrated food, et cetera. And thankfully it was early enough in the springtime that I had time, but I'm like, we have got to up what we're growing this year and doing more than we have preserved and ever put up in the past. And so I looked ahead and I'm like, okay, do I have enough canning lids to take me all the way through until 2021? And so I, had some left from you guys. I had a couple of sleeves left and I thought, you know, I probably better order extra, extra sleeves just to be on the safe side so that if I do have this much produce available, then I've got the, the supplies to put it up. And so I went on and it said out of stock, but I placed my order because I thought in my head, I'm like, well, I'll place my order. And then that means as soon as they are in stock that you would fulfill those first rather than just go on a wait list. <laughs> and so it took about, um, I want to say it was about two and a half weeks. And then they just came right along in the mail and there they were. So I have been 
recommending that people do that. I hope that is not inaccurate advice. Um, but on your bulk canning lids, I do have, a, um, I've had some people ask me and I honestly didn't know the answer, but who makes your guys's bulk canning lids? Um, you know, I am looking into that now. I know that they are USA made. I'm pretty sure it's a factory in Pennsylvania, but I will have to get back to you on that. You are correct, though, in telling people to place their order to kind of get in line. What happens in some cases is we have so many back orders. When the product comes in, we fulfill all the back orders, but we're out of stock again. But we are filling back orders as, as quickly as we can, and we have an unprecedented amount of back orders right now. Oh, I can only imagine. So guys, if, you, if you're wanting to go and check out the bolt canning lids that I'm talking about, they come in, in big sleeves and there's both regular mouth and wide mouth. Um, you can use melissacanoris.com forward slash canning lids and go and check those out. We'll also have resources um, and lots of different links and things um, for this episode in the blog post that accompanies it, which is at melissacanoris.com forward slash 258 because this is episode number 258. Um, and I'm really excited to hear that your canning lids are made in the USA because I didn't know for sure. I know that they're not actually ball. Um, and some people have asked me this too, that if, do they work as well? Do they seal as well as the ball lids because they're not technically made by ball uh, corporation. And I've, I'm sure I've processed probably close to 600 jars with the lids and they've been fabulous. I've not had a single um, seal failure with them. So, just in case anybody has went <laughs> and, and read different reviews. They've been fabulous for me. So good. Uh, yeah, I've been very pleased with them. Um, so that you kind of answered my question, though, on your inventory, on the things like the canning lids and supplies. Um, and I know I'm sure it's kind of, you know, ever changing every day, but with the canning supplies specifically, so the bulk lids and then also the jars, um, is it about like a two to three week wait on those or is are the lids different than the jars or how is your guys' supply holding up on those? Yeah, the lids are about a week behind the jars. I'd say the jars are two weeks and the lids are three weeks. That is provided the factories can stay open. Um, you know, we never know what's going to happen. These things are out of our control. I, I read someplace that we need to have a high tolerance for ambiguity. You know, when you run a business, you're, you're planning ahead, you're looking at the future, you're watching trends, and now things seem to be changing day by day. So not knowing what's going to happen and adjusting accordingly has been a real challenge in business today. We are very fortunate, though. Our retail store has stayed open. Uh, it's been deemed an essential business, but it's a large store, and so we can handle large crowds, which of course are not appropriate now, but our store traffic was down as much as 80 to 90 percent. It's about 50 percent right now, but direct sales are making up for that, which also allowed us to take some of the store staff that we didn't need and move them over to packing orders, which kept them employed, and so we felt good about that. Oh, absolutely. Um I do want to circle back to some of the Amish stuff, though. When I just find it, I find it fascinating, I, um, their lifestyle. And I had a lot of questions come in, too, um, about that. So one of the questions I had, and what I find interesting is, so you guys actually, so I've looked more like at your, the supplies, like um, I have my eye on some of the mixing bowls, actually, is <laughs> one of the things that I've got my eye on that I'm going to be ordering very shortly. Um, but you guys have both, supplies like kitchen supplies, garden supplies, etc. And then you but you also sell food too, which I find really interesting as well. So would you say kind of like a I guess like a percentage or a breakdown into the Amish provide any of the food that you guys sell too? Or is it more just on the like physical type I well they're both physical, but um the non-food items. There we go. <laughs> Um, we do have some Amish produce uh, food items. And, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't sell food. We sold the products for you to preserve your own food. And then we, we started thinking about the simpler life and how you can always take the next step on your journey to a simpler life. So perhaps you want locally made or handmade soap or candles and you're not ready to make them yourself, we have all the supplies, you can make them yourself or you can buy ones that have been handcrafted for you. The same with food. Perhaps you want homemade egg noodles or um, you know, locally made potato chips, but you're not ready to make them yourself. We can provide 
different products to help you on that step. Like you mentioned yourself, you know, you're kind of an expert in the homesteading community, but you realized there were more steps that you needed to take. And so that's what we want to do is help people take the next step by providing simple solutions to life's stresses. Okay. I love that. Um, Speaking of the supplies to do it yourself, what have seemed to be some of the better selling small kitchen tools among the Amish or and or that you see that, that are Amish made that you guys have in the store too? The Polish dough whisk ah. is something that is not Amish made now. We're looking at getting an Amish vendor to make it, but they use it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it on our website. It's kind of an odd looking little tool, but it really, when you whisk the dough, sometimes the dough gets caught up in a regular whisk. Uh-huh. And this kind of a, a circle within a circle within a circle. And it's hard to explain, but it works uh, very well. And the Amish, um, I don't know if there's an Amish kitchen around that doesn't have one. They also tend to purchase large containers. They have large families and family is very important to them. So if you're making three meals a day for 10 people, you're going to need a large skillet, a large stock pot. Um, some of the garden hand tools too are very popular. One that's made by the Amish and used by the Amish would be the Amish push-pull hoe, which is kind of got a triangular tip on it. And so you can pull weeds out and you can push dirt around. Um, That would be a good example of something used by the Amish, made by the Amish, that came to us from their suggestions. Oh, I love that. In fact, this is so funny. I know neither one of us had any way of knowing this, but my husband and I just this weekend <laughs> were saying that I de- we needed to get one of those push-pull hoes. It's one of the few garden things that we don't have. And we were out working in the garden. I'm like, I've got to get one of those this year. So it's so funny that you bring that up. And I completely agree with that dough whisk. Oh my goodness. I got one, I want to say like two years ago. I cannot believe I operated my kitchen for that many years without one. It such a simple, small little tool, but it really makes a big difference when you're mixing up dough, especially uh, bread dough and, and things that are thicker doughs that aren't necessarily batters. Oh, it, it's just so helpful. I love mine. Yeah, that's great. I'm afraid those are out of stock now too, but <laughs> getting more in. Um, yeah, we have never had this many out of stocks on our website. Um, and as someone in, in marketing, it's, uh, I just feel terrible about it, but it really is out of our control. So I would just ask people to be patient. And by and large, they have been. I mean, they understand that, you know, there's, there's nothing we can do about it. We went to do um, hot dogs over the campfire the other day, and my husband went to the grocery store, and there was no meat, absolutely nothing. No bacon, no hamburger, no steaks, never seen anything like it. But I wouldn't be mad at the grocery. You know, I would just understand they can't get the product. Yeah, I'm with you. In fact, the meat thing is very interesting. I know, I know we were talking about it a little bit earlier with the, with the canned meat as being something that's moving a lot with you guys. And, and thankfully, we raise pretty much the majority of our meat. So we do our own beef cattle and pigs and meat chickens and then our hens for eggs. Um, but I had noticed even back in... March, the end of February, I would supplement and buy if I wanted just like chicken thighs or chicken breasts, because when you're doing whole chickens, I mean, you can cut them up, but obviously we usually just keep them as whole birds. And from Costco, I always buy organic pasture raised if I'm purchasing any meat. That's just my own uh, personal beliefs. (laughs) Um, But they were having a hard time keeping it in stock. And this was back in February. And I have not seen it in stock the few times I have went into town since March and and the whole COVID thing um, that they've even been able to keep that in stock, let alone some of the other meat. But what we're seeing here, and I would imagine in pretty much all the communities is I love that people are, are then turning to local sources. And I hope that when we come out of this, that, that using local places is something that we do more of and doing local business. Um, but like even with our pig breeders, because we don't breed our own pigs, they now are sold out for this entire year and they're starting waitlist for 2021. And that's just if you're not breeding your own pigs and you want to get, you know, obviously pigs to raise for pork. Um, but and I've seen that like the butchers, they don't have any dates left available and even trying to find local meat because everybody is kind of turning that way has just kind of exploded. And so the supply there can't even keep up with the demand. So I'm with you. Like we just are going to have to learn to have patience and know that nobody is intentionally not keeping something in stock right now. 
Right, exactly. And our, our vendors are, are trying uh, as hard as they can. And we, we do see people coming up with innovative solutions. Um, trying to think of an example. Um, oh, I have a friend that has three school-aged children. And so now, of course, she's feeding three meals a day, like, like you are, um, to all of these people. And so each child takes a meal, and it's kind of a, like an Iron Chef deal that whatever's in the house, you come up with a meal. And they've had some odd ones, but they're, they're having fun doing it, and um, they're staying healthy. So it seems to be working. Oh, I kind of like that. I really like that, actually. Um, <laughs> we have, like, empty the fridge and, and kind of, like, uh, use on and things from the pantry. And like you said, sometimes they're kind of weird, but sometimes. Um, One of the questions was, oh, what do they do for fun, I believe? Yes. And actually kind of a joke, but they play volleyball and softball. And we did a, a fun kind of a competitive game with the non-Amish and the Amish. And they are incredibly good volleyball players. Oh, fun. So not only are most of us doing more cooking than we ever have before, but we are also doing activities rather than just watch TV or be on electronics. And sometimes that's a battle when you have teenagers and, and younger kids. So we're practicing trying to find different things to keep us occupied and stuff where, you know, we're not going out and, and doing activities that we might normally be a part of. So with the Amish, do they have any leisure time activities that are especially popular that we might adapt and kind of use? Yeah, they have very active youth groups and they often get together and sing. But two of the sporting activities they love are baseball and volleyball. We had a fun competition between the young people, the Amish and the non-Amish, and they are incredibly good volleyball players. I mean, like the kind of volleyball players you see on TV, you know, set, bump, spike, slam. Wow, that was <laughs> so that's fun. Oh, that is fun. In fact, we've been doing a lot of volleyball without a net. So we've just uh, I have two children and my husband and I. And so we just kind of pair up and just our goal is to keep it volleying back and forth as long as possible without letting it hit the ground. So um, that's fun that you guys got to got to do that. Um, I love that. I actually drove by an Amish school, I think it was last summer, and they were playing baseball, but they had no balls or bats. It was imaginary. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, I, I really, that is awesome. I love that. Oh, they're definitely dedicated if they're going to play it without a ball and a bat and just pretend that they're playing. That is really That's, cool. that's right. If I was up, I'd just say home run every time. Right. Yes, <laughs> same here. <laughs> that's fun. Um, so I'm curious with your guys's, because you have a large inventory and in meaning like you guys offer a lot of products, which is awesome. Kind of all across, like I said, I have spent hours just thumbing through the different catalogs and online and making wish lists and like, oh, that's really cool. Um, do you, is most of your items made in the U.S.? Are some made overseas or kind of what's that percentage? Um, yes, some are made overseas. We have a very high percentage of USA made items like in our, our toy section. And I would challenge you to find uh, in any of the big boxes, any toys that are made in the USA. However, some things simply are not available in the USA. For example, there is a mantle that goes with one of our lamps mm -hmm. uh, and it's only available in countries like Malaysia and the Philippines. So we have three choices. Stop carrying the lamp, which we don't want to do build a mantle factory in Kidron, which we aren't going to do, or purchase the product from overseas. Um, so there are some um, made overseas. There are also some European products that we bring in. Um, so in, informally, we joke that it either comes from a mile up the road or 2,000 miles away. <laughs> I, I like that. And I have to say, most of the things that I've seen when I've been looking have been USA made, but I was just, I was just very curious just to kind of see how that felt. Cause I feel like you guys have done a really good job from what I've noticed is, is just a, a customer um, of keeping things sourced very, very well within the U S and, and with the Amish community. So um, I was just kind of curious. So I thought that was very interesting. Another, another thing that we run into is we can't get a decent price on something because we can't buy enough. I mean, we're not Walmart. We're not going to buy 10,000. Um, you know, people have been asking for a stainless steel teapot. We found somebody to make them, but at the quantity we felt comfortable buying, they would have been hundreds of dollars a piece. And then of course they wouldn't sell. So right. that, that is the challenge too. Sometimes USA made products in the small amount that we can purchase 
um, becomes too expensive. And then the consumer, of course, doesn't see the value in that. So we get caught in kind of this cycle. Um, like, like USA made apparel tends to be more expensive than imported. Um, but we do whenever possible source locally. Okay. I love that. Yeah. And there is that, there's always that battle of, of getting it local and doing your best to do that. But also, is it going to be within a price point that people are going to pay? And I, I think as a consumer, you have that battle too. Cause I know I would love to do everything USA made. And some people just make that, that choice and they have a hard line in the sand and that's all they do or, and, or they just don't get anything. Um, I tend to be not quite that hard line in the sand and I do try to buy local and USA made, but there are times when, um, you know, cost dictates that I don't. So thank you for being very transparent about that. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, I have another interesting example. We sell some, uh, I guess people would call them high-end grills, but they're the kind of grills that you keep for 20, 30 years. And we had a man come in and every year he bought a cheap kind of hibachi grill for 50 bucks and used it and then threw it away. And it didn't even occur to him that spending the money on something that would last much longer made sense. Um, you know, some of our, our wooden toys, our trains, you know, it can be $40, $50. I'm sure you could get a little plastic train at Walmart for $5, but do you want a train that your child will, will play with for a month? Or do you want one that your child can pass down to not only his children, but his grandchildren? Therein lies the difference. Yes. No, I completely agree on the quality, oh my goodness, there's been so many things that we have purchased cheap. And sometimes you're at a point in life. I mean, when we were first starting out, it was, I, I buy it cheaper, I don't have it. And so sometimes you make that choice. But if you do have the funds, I have come to realize, which my husband loves, loves it when I actually say this because he tried to tell me it from the beginning. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. <laughs> now I have to say he's right, which, um, but it is true. If you buy something that is made to last, you save money over the long run and not just money, but the time having to replace it and then get rid of the item that's broke and try to do so in a way that's ethical. Uh, there is something if you're able to afford it to buying the thing that's more, um, that's a better quality, which usually equals more money. If Right. And the Amish who tend not to have a lot of discretionary income, they also have very little debt. They, they typically wouldn't have a credit card. Some of them would have a checking account, but of course they don't have a house payment and they don't buy fancy clothes and things like that. But they tend to be willing to spend more on like a, a nice wood cook stove can be $3,000. And you might think, wow, that, that's a very expensive appliance, but it would last for generations in a typical Amish family the groom's parents buy the new bride a wood cook stove. And we're on our third generation of some of those families. And so that's, that's nice. You can see them come in, the, the two sets of parents and the young couple and, and picking out the wood cook stove. Uh, it's just a very heartwarming thing to see. I love that. So I have to ask you, because I've not actually looked on your website to know this, but do you guys have any of the hybrid wood cook stoves where it's like half electric and half wood? Um, we don't. We do have some. Uh, there's a, a one that is very popular right now called the Vermont Bun Baker, and you can cook on it and you can also heat your home with it. Uh, typically, a wood cook stove, you cook in it and on it, and it's designed to get hot fast to cook your food. It's not designed to heat your home. That said, if you live in a tiny home, like our friends off grid with Doug and Stacy, you can use a wood cook stove to heat your home. So the Vermont bun baker is kind of a hybrid of a wood cook stove and a wood heating stove. Okay. I love that. I actually, my parents have in their house, which theirs is a larger house, but when they bought it, it came with it and it's an old, it still works. So they use it, but it's half electric and half wood. And my husband and I have been talking and currently my, my stove is just, it's electric in the kitchen and it works just fine. But I would love when it does go out, <laughs> I want to replace it with one of those hybrid models. Um, so that in the summertime, we don't have air conditioning here living in the Pacific Northwest at all. So in the summertime, I'm not obviously heating my house and I just cook on my regular wood stove. I obviously don't bake inside of it. I have Dutch ovens and we'll use those outside, but I, I cook a lot on the stove top. It's a cook's it's a wood stove with a cook stove top, but not a baking oven. Um, but I would love to have one in the kitchen that in the wintertime I could just use. And like you said, it would heat the house partially, obviously, to bake with. But then in the summertime, I could just use the electric part of it so it wouldn't get things as hot. Um, 
and they're really hard to find. Um, and even looking for older ones to refurbish has been uh, difficult to find any that are in good enough shape to actually refurbish and use too. So anyways, I was just curious if you had had one of those, because if you did, I was going to go shopping. <laughs> well, maybe I should suggest that to our merchandising team to be on the search for one. Ooh, I like that. You And you let me know, let me know if you come up with one, because I would be on that in a hot minute. So um, I love that. One of the things um, that people were asking about is when you're dealing with Amish, now I know you said that they're not motivated by capitalism. So just giving them like, you know, the offer of, well, I'll pay you double if you can, you know, do this faster isn't really something that's going to appeal to them. And they don't work on Sundays. So they, they keep Sunday as a holy day and as their Sabbath. Is there any other cultural considerations when doing business with them um, that, that you find uh, different than I guess with, with most other Americans or with just that's unique to the Amish community? Um, I would say I find the Amish to be the most moral, least judgmental group of people that I have ever worked with. Um, the only difficulty I've ever experienced is they avoid conflict. Now, nobody likes conflict, but they avoid it. So perhaps if we were to ask, can we have this product by tomorrow? They would say, well, we'll work on it when in fact we really can't get it tomorrow at all. Um, that's just, just, you know, like I said, nobody likes conflict, but they tend to avoid it. Um, they're very, very family oriented. Um, and and very eager to help. For example, if we go to one of our Amish vendors and say, do you have this specific product? He may sit and think, and he said, I don't. But if you go up the road, talk to my brother, Eli, and he has a, a friend that might make it for you. And so we go on this kind of chase and we get to Eli and then we get to his friend and we get, and so it gives us a, a real chance to, to interact with him. Oh, I like that. That's, that is interesting. And th so they don't have, and this may be just I've watched too many movies or read inaccurate things, but um, they're obviously not opposed to dealing with the outsiders or modern society um, and doing business with them and helping them in, in, in that way. Um, no, now keep in mind when we talk about the Amish, it would be no different than talking about Catholics or Jewish people. You know, they're all individuals. They're all different people. In the Amish culture, too, there are many different levels. Um, the Schwarzenschuber Amish tend to be very isolated, very rural, uh, perhaps living on the edge of poverty. And then you've got high order Amish and new order Amish. And um, I'd say the vast majority are bilingual. They probably speak Pennsylvania Dutch at home, but speak English outside of the world, uh, outside of the home. They only have an eighth grade education, but I wonder how many eighth grade U.S. or non-Amish English, as they call us, how many eighth grade English young people are bilingual these days? Yeah. Well, yeah, probably depending upon the bilingual, I think there's probably quite a few within the Spanish speaking. Um, if they, you know, have Spanish heritage, there we go. Right. <laughs> I tried to think of the way to phrase that uh, correctly. Um, but I find that really interesting. You know, and it's also funny because, and we're not knocking education by any means. Um, I think education can be a great thing. And there's lots of forms of education. And my dad, for example, he only went to school through the 10th grade, but he had his own, you know, his own business. He ran his own business. He was self-employed for a good majority um, of, of his life. And even now he's retired, but he still has his side um I guess you'd call it like a side hustle. He still has side things that he's doing even at 82. He's not completely retired. Um, and in a lot of senses, he's one of the, the smartest people that I know, even though he doesn't have a college degree or, or you know, even he didn't even finish high school. So um, I think that there's lots of ways that we can be educated um, and not all of it is with a formal degree. So Yes, my father, too, quit school in the eighth grade, which back then was not unusual. You were needed to help on the farm. And I think it's interesting that he has been, oh, just recently we were featured in the Wall Street Journal because of this COVID-19 thing. And he's been featured in business books and, um, you know, as a, a real successful entrepreneur. And he had very little formal education. Yeah, so I, I love hearing that because I think sometimes... Probably not. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably aren't 
of that thought that everything has to come from a formal education and, and you need a college degree. I mean, you know, you do so for, for some careers, obviously you're going to have to have that, but um, I just have, I've, over the, the years, I sound so old now, <laughs> but over the years, I've just, have always found that very, uh, very interesting because there seems to be really two, two uh, thoughts that I, that I come in from people. And that is, oh man, you have to have, you know, you have to go to college to be successful and you have to have this degree, et cetera. And then others that are like, nope, there's, there's all kinds of ways to learn. So um, one last question I had was, what are, do you notice in dealing with the Ohio Amish, I should specify here, uh, some of the 10 most common foods that they tend to keep in bulk? Anything to do with baking and cooking. Um, there are a number of bulk food stores around here and things that are hard to get now, like yeast. Have you noticed that yeast is hard to buy now? That would be something that would probably be in every Amish pantry. Uh, different kinds of, of flour and sugar and the raw materials for producing food. Um, they often grow well, in most cases, grow all of the food that they eat. Once in a while, you'll see them in the grocery store. Um, and so things that they have grown themselves, like potatoes, um, I'm sure they would have jams and jellies on their shelves, um, stuff to make pie. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah, they do seem to be really big bakers, which if you're running a farm with that many kids and producing all of your own food, you are working a lot. <laughs> and so um, you could eat a lot more baked food without having the expanding waistline um, than those of us who are not living that, uh, that, that laborious part of life, I think. Exactly. If you have a huge breakfast with bacon and eggs and toast at 7 a.m., well, you've been doing chores for two hours prior to that. Yeah. I just so enjoyed this. I, I really love hearing how, how your guys' store was founded because I didn't actually know that history prior to today um, and that how you're keeping that and, and even trying to evolve that. And it's kind of coming full, full circle now that the Amish are also producing a lot of the items that you sell. Um, and I'm obviously a, a huge fan. In fact, when this lifts, I would... Um, I, in fact, our neighbors went on a road trip. Now, this was several years ago. And it was so funny because when they got back, they did from Washington all the way out to Tennessee and then up the East Coast to New York and then back. It was this months-long road trip they took. And one of the, when they got back, they're like, oh, you know what, you're just kind of sharing. And what was your favorite part? And they said, oh, there's one place that you absolutely have to go. And it was your guys' store. They said they spent a whole day there and they're like, you would be in love. It's one of the places that you have to go to and, and see in person. So anyways, uh, so this was really, really fun to get to talk with you um, about everything that you guys are doing. So thank you. Yes. And I invite you to come visit when the travel restrictions are, are over. We often have influencers like yourself on our property. Uh, Jill Wanger with Prairie Homestead has been there. Joel Salatin has been there off-grid with Doug and Stacy. Um, so we love having folks meeting person to person when it's appropriate, of course. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, and for providing everything that you guys do. Um, and just not, you know, not only what I think is really fascinating about this is not only are you providing for those of us who want to get these supplies and we don't have the availability to go to Amish, like I don't, at, here in Washington state, at least none that I know of, um, where there isn't an Amish community for me to go and, and to learn from or to get these supplies. So you're supplying that, but you're also creating a way for the Amish to make money as well as to buy their supplies. So I, I really just love the interconnectivity of that. And I feel like that's one of the things that old fashioned and homesteading did so well was to, to benefit multiple people and to keep that circle going. And so anyways, I'm kind of gushing, but thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Our, our, our uh, commitment to the local community, many of whom are Amish is, is very important to us. And, and we have a lot of respect for them. Um, we were disappointed the TV shows that portrayed them. That is not, first of all, an Amish person would never be on TV. So if they're on TV, they aren't Amish anymore. Um, and we, we just do not see the Amish community in any way, shape or form as they have been portrayed on some of the TV shows. As I mentioned before, they are the most moral, least judgmental group of people I have ever had the pleasure to work with.
Oh, awesome. Yeah, I've I've seen some of the previews for those shows that you're referencing. So I got you there. <laughs> well, um, is there anything that you want to leave as a last word or thought with the listeners today? Um, I appreciate being a guest on the podcast and we would love to show people what we have in our store, which is much more than we have on the website. Uh, we're a little unusual in that way. Uh, some of the box stores like a target will have less in the store and more on the website. We are the opposite because we want it to be a place where you can learn and experience. Uh, we have a very robust schedule of events. We're hoping to resume in July. So I would encourage people to go to layman com slash events uh, to see what's coming up next. And again, thank you for your time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Glenda. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I actually learned quite a bit and am very excited when things are lifted and I'm allowed to travel again because it is one place that I definitely want to hit. Now, up next week, I'm going to be sharing more about our meat birds and also getting and raising pigs. You guys have been sending me a ton of fabulous questions. Uh, a lot of you are new to raising your own meat and your own livestock. And so there was a lot of questions. So I'm going to dive into them. So if you have questions, if you listen to those episodes, if not, highly recommend that you go back and catch those. Specifically, episode number... 256, which is 10 tips on raising chickens for meat. And then I also had an episode that was on the first six weeks when you've got baby chicks. And that's going to be the same with your meat chickens and also laying hens. So both breeds, dual purpose breeds there that you want to check out. And that was the Raising Baby Chicks Beginner's Guide for the First Six Weeks. And that's episode number 106. But a lot of you had questions past those six weeks. So as they got older, as well as questions on raising pigs. So let me know if you have questions that weren't covered in either of those two episodes so that I can make sure and include them in next week's episode. And a reminder, if you decide that you want to order some things from Layman's, which I'm sure you're going to have a wish list as long as mine, if not longer, be sure and use laymans.com forward slash pioneer and the coupon code pioneer to get 10% off of a $50 minimum order. Thanks so much, guys. Okay, bye for now, but we will talk again soon. Mm -hmm.